Chapter sixty eight of The Wanderer or Female Difficulties. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings from the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wanderer or Female Difficulties by Fanny Burney. Chapter sixty eight. Thus, in manual toil, yet mental comfort, had passed a week, when one morning, while the usual commissioner for carrying about goods happened to be out of the way, a lady from Soho Square sent, in great haste, an order for some ribbons. Juliet, to save a customer to her friend, proposed supplying the commissioner's place, and set forth for that purpose, with a little band-box in her hands, and a large black bonnet drawn over her eyes. But before she reached the square, she overtook two men who were loitering on, as leisurely as she was tripping diligently, and the words, "'You'll never know her again, I promise you. She's turned out quite a beauty,' struck her ears, from a voice which she recollected to be that of Mr. Riley. Anxious to avoid being recognized by him, she crossed to the other side of the street, with the precipitance that caused the cover of her bandbox, which she had neglected to fasten to slip aside, and most of her stores, to roll in the dust. While, with great dismay, she sought to recover them, a feeble but eager voice from a carriage, which suddenly stopped, ordered a footman to descend and assist the young lady. Not without confusion, Juliet perceived to whom she owed so uncommon a civility. It was to her old friend and admirer, Sir Jasper Harrington. She collected her merchandise, curtsied her thanks, but looked another way, and hurried back to her new home. She related her adventure to Gabriella, with whom she bemoaned the mischief that had befallen the ribbons, and who now, determined to spare her friend any further hazard of unwelcome encounters, by carrying herself what yet remained unsoiled of the pieces, to Soho Square. Juliet had barely time to install herself as mistress of the small warehouse, when she saw, through the open window, the carriage of Sir Jasper, at the same time that a young woman opened the shop-door, and demanded a drachm of black sewing-silk and a yard of tape. While Juliet with difficulty found, and with embarrassment prepared, to weigh the first, and to measure the second, the baronet, with a curious but respectful air, entering, and hobbling towards the counter, desired to look at some ribbons. Juliet, however vexed, could not refrain from smiling, but, through confusion, joined to the novelty of her office, she doubled the weight of her silk, and the measure of her tape, yet forgot to ask to be paid for either, and her new customer, whether from similar forgetfulness, or from reluctance to mark the new shopkeeper's ignorance of business, walked off without seeming to notice this inattention. Sir Jasper then gravely repeated his request to be shown some ribbons. Juliet began now to hope that she had not been recollected by the baronet. Shading her face, therefore, still lower with her large bonnet, she produced a drawer of black ribbons, concluding that what he required must be for his cue or for his shoe-strings. No, he said, black would not do, the colour that he wanted was brown. In a low voice that strove to disguise itself, 
she answered that she had no other colour at home. He would stay till some other were returned, then, he said, and composedly seating himself, and taking out his snuff-box, he added that he did not want plain brown ribbons, but ribbons speckled, spotted, or splashed with brown. Juliet, who could now no longer doubt being known to him, made no reply, though again, irresistibly, she smiled. To the baronet her smile was always enchantment. Setting aside, therefore, any further pretense to strangeness, he leant his hands upon the counter, and peering archly under her bonnet, said, "'Tis you indeed, then, sweet sorceress, and what sylph is it, or what imp, dulcet or malignant, that has drawn me again into the witchery of your charms?' He then poured forth countless inquiries into her situation, her projects, and her sentiments, but, all proving fruitless, he pathetically lamented the luckless meeting, and frankly owned that he had brought himself to a resolution of seeing her no more. "'The rude assault,' said he, "'made upon my feelings by those mundane harpies at Arran Castle, removed a bandage from my mind's eye that had veiled me to myself, and showed me that I was an old fool caught in the delusions of love and beauty. I could parry no raillery. I could brave no suspicion.' I could retort no sneer. Panic-struck and disordered, I stole away like a gentle philander of Arcadia, my head drooping upon my left shoulder, my eyes cast down upon the ground, with every love-born symptom, except youth, which alone offers their apology. I spent the rest of the day in character with this opening, mute with my servants, loquacious in soliloquy, quarrelling with my books, and neglecting my dinner. Sleepless and sighing, I repaired to my solitary couch, lost to every idea of existence, but what pointed out to me how, when, and where I might again behold my lovely enchantress. Shall I tell you how it was I recovered at last my senses? If you think the lesson may be useful to me, Sir Jasper. Ah, cruel! He jests at scars who never felt a wound. Mark, however, the visions by which I have been tutored. The servants gone, the lights removed, and the world's bustle superseded by stillness, darkness, and solitude. Then, when my fancy meant to revel in smiles, dimples, sweet looks, and recreative wiles, then, what a transformation from hope and enjoyment to shame and derision! I no sooner closed my poor eyes than an hundred little imps of darkness scrambled up my pillow. How was I tweaked, jerked, and jolted, mumbled, jumbled, and pinched, some of them encircled my eyeballs, holding mirrors in each hand. They spoke not. The mirrors were all eloquent. You think, they expressed, of a young girl. Behold here what a young girl must think of you. Others jammed my lean, lank arms into a machine of whalebone, to strengthen and invigorate them for offering support, in cases of difficulty or danger to my fair one. Others fastened elastic strings to my withered neck and shoulders, to enable me, by little pulleys, to raise my head after every obsequious reverence to my goddess. Crowds of the nimblest footed divided their little forked fingers into my heart, plucking up by the root sober contentment and propriety, and pummeling into their places restlessness, jealousy, and suspicion mocking me when they had done so, by peeping into my ears, and squeaking out, with merry tittering, See, 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 what sickly rubbish the old dotard has got in his crazy noodle. Juliet again smiled, 
but so faintly, from uncertainty to what this fantastic gallantry might tend, that Sir Jasper, looking at her with concern, said, "'How's this, my dainty Ariel? Why so serious a brow? Have some of my nocturnal visitants swissed themselves through the keyhole of your chamber-door also? And have they tormented your fancy with waking visions of fearful omens? Spurn them all, sweet siren!' What can the tricks and malice of hobgoblins, or even the freaks and vagaries of fortune itself, enact against youth, beauty, and health such as yours? Give me but such arms, and I will brave the wayward sisters themselves. More seriously, then. Alas! he cried. What is it thus mystic, yet thus attractive, that allures me whether I will or not into your chains? Could I but tell who or what you are— besides being an angel, it is possible there might occur some idea, some, some little notion of means to exercise the wicked familiars that severally annoy us. Tell me but under what semblance the pygmy enemies invade you, whether, as usual, with the darts of Master Cupid, shot furiously into your snowy bosom, or— No, no, no! Or whether, by the bags of Plutus— emptied, furtively, from your strong-box, in the first case, little as my bosom is snowy, I should but too well know how to pity. In the second, I should be proud and honoured to serve you. Tell me, then, who you are, resistless paragon, and you shall wander no more in the nameless state, an exquisite but nearly visionary being. Tell me but who you are, and I will protect you myself with my life and fortune. Alarmed by this warmth, and doubtful whether it demanded gratitude or resentment, Juliet was silent. "'If you will not reveal to me your history,' he resumed, "'will you at least not refuse to let me divine it? I am a famous star-gazer, and if once I can discover your ruling planet, I shall prognosticate your destiny in a second. Let me, then, read the lines of your face. Nay, you must not hide it. You must give me fair play.' or shall I examine the palm of your hand? Juliet laughed, but drew on her gloves. Oh, you little tyrant! I must only then catch, as I can, a glimpse of your countenance, a nauseous task enough to dwell on anything so ugly. All I can make out from it just now is the figure of a coronet. A coronet? Yes, under which I perceive the cipher D. Do you know anything of any nobleman whose name begins with a D? I cannot decipher the rest of the letters, except that the last is, I think, an H. Juliet started. My art, I must, however, own, is at a stand, to discover whether this nobleman may be a lover or a kinsman. To discern that, the general lines of the face are inadequate. I must investigate the eyes. Juliet pertinaciously looked down. How now, my dainty Ariel? Will you give me no answer, neither verbal nor visual? Will you not even tell me whether I must try to make the old peer my advocate, or whether I must run him through the body? Surely you won't let me count him as of kin if he be a rival, nor pink him as a rival if he be of kin. He is neither, I can assure you, sir. He is nothing to me whatsoever. You know at least, then, it seems, whom I mean. Sir? My tiny elves have not here deluded me. I am always afraid lest these merry little wags should be flying me some prank. 
But it is you who are the wicked will-o'-the-wisp, that lures all others, yet never can be lured yourself. Lord Denmeath has really, then, and in sober truth, the happiness of some way belonging to you. No, sir, you mistake me. I never— She left her phrase unfinished. Shall I relate what the prattling tell-tales have blabbed to me further? They pretend that Lord Denmeath ought himself to be your protector, but that he is so void of taste, so empty of sentiment, that he seeks to disguise, if not disown, an affinity that, with more liberal ideas, he would exult as an honour. Who talked of affinity, sir? cried Juliet, with quickness irrepressible. Was it Lord Denmeath? Did he name me to you? Name you? Has anyone named you? indefinable, unconquerable, unfathomable incognita. Has any one presumed to give you a human genealogy? Are you not straight descended from the clouds, without even taking the time to change yourself first into a mortal? Explain, expound, unravel to me in soft pity. Juliet solemnly entreated him to forbear any further interrogatory, assuring him that all inquiry gave her pain. Then shall the stars, cried he, fade away, the sun grow dim, and nature, like my poor old carcass, sink in years, ere one grain more of the favourable attribute of our general mother shall be sown in my discourse. But you, in all things marvellous, you, have you really, and bona fide, so little in your composition of our naughty mamma, as not even to desire to know in what shape appeared to me the tattling little elf that talked to me of Lord Denmeath? You have not, then, sir, seen him? Or if I had, twenty interviews would not have initiated me into his affairs with so much promptitude, as twenty minutes sufficed for doing with my elfin fay. I conjecture, then, sir, your informant, Miss Selina Jodrell. Even so, upon determining to quit Brighthelmstone, three or four days ago, I drove over to Lewes, to offer what apologies I could suggest to Mrs. Maple, for the vagaries of my hopeful nephew and heir, who is suddenly set out for Constantinople, in search, as he writes me word, of a fair Circassian. The last of my designs, in so delicate a case, you will easily believe, was to embarrass the injured and deserted fair one by my sight but she had a fortitude far above my precautions. She flew to me herself, and her own plaintive tale had no sooner been bemoaned than she hastened to favour me with the history of the whole house. I then learnt your sudden disappearance, and heard, with extreme satisfaction, from the indignation I had felt in seeing your ill-treatment, that my meek sister-in-law had fallen into fits from the first shock of finding that you are no longer under her domination. My Lord Denmeath, who had already gone through the ceremonial of demanding Mrs. Maple's permission to obtain a private audience with you, seemed thunderstruck at the news that the bird he so much wished to sing to him was flown. The whole house was in disorder, running, inquiring, asserting, denying. The wild Eleanor alone was tame and tranquil, for Mr. Harley has kept constantly in sight. Delicate and ever-feeling Harley, thought Juliet. Her life and my reputation hang suspended upon the same guardian care. That eccentric and most original personage, continued Sir Jasper, has now wholly made over her mind to the study of controversial theology. Every chair is covered with polemical tracts, 
to prove one side of an argument, that every table is covered to disprove on the other. If she settle her opinion one way, she will probably become the foundress of some newfangled monastery. If, on the other, she will be discovered, some starlight night, seeking truth at the bottom of a well. Juliet then anxiously inquired into the state of her health. "'She seems to me,' answered the baronet, "'quite as well as it is possible for a person to be, "'who is afflicted with the restless malady "'of struggling for occasion to exhibit character, "'instead of leaving its display "'to the jumble of nature and of accident. "'But these new systemers do not break out of bounds "'more wildly from whim "'than they afterwards seek retreat within them, "'tamely, from experience.' The little Selina, on the contrary, who has escaped the trouble of supporting a character, by not having an idea that could form one, had the kindness to make me the most liberal communication of everything that she has either seen or heard, since she has been skipping about in this nether world. And, in her scampers from room to room, and from person to person, she had gathered sundry interesting particulars of a certain fair unknown. He paused, looked anxious, and then went on. I would not be officious, impertinent, nor importunate, yet could I but ascertain some points. If, however, you will not unfold to me your history, will you at least, siren of sirens, to develop why I demand it, hear me divulge my own? Juliet, surprised and amused, gratefully assented. Know then, my fair torment, it pleased my wise progenitors to entail my estate upon my next of kin in case I should have no lineal heir. Brought up with the knowledge of this restriction to the fantasies of my future will, I conceived an early suspicion that my younger brother built sundry vainglorious castles upon my celibacy, and I determined not to reach my twentieth year before I put an end to his presumption. The first idea, therefore, that fastened upon my mind was that of marriage. But as I entertained a general belief, that I should everywhere be accepted for mercenary motives, I viewed all females with the scrutiny of a bargain-maker. Thankless for any mark of partiality, difficult even to absurdity, I sought new faces with restless impatience. Modestly persuaded that I ought to find a companion without a plot. Yet, whatever was my success, regularly making off from every fair charmer, after the second interview, through the fear of being taken in. "'And were none of your little sylphs, sir, at hand, to point out to you some one who is disinterested in her nature, however inferior in her fortune?' "'No, alas, no. My sylphs all reserve themselves for my meeting with you.' The wicked little imps who then guided and goaded me, incited me to suspect and to watch everything that seemed lovely or amiable, and the pranks that they played me were endless.' They urged me to pursue the glowing beauty, whose vivid cheeks, crimsoned by the dance, had warmed all my senses at a ball, to her alighting from her carriage, at her return home, with the livid line of fatigue and moonlight. They instigated me to surprise, when ill-dressed, negligent, and spiritless, the charming face and form that, skilfully adorned, had appeared to me Venus attired by the graces. They twitched me on to dart upon another, whose bloom had seemed the opening of the rosebud, just as an untoward accident had rubbed off, from one cheek, the sweet pink which remained undiminished upon the other. And when, tired of the deceptions of beauty, I would only follow merit, 
the little wanton sprites, suggested detection still more mischievous. They led me to overhear the softest of maidens insult a poor dependent. They showed me a pattern of discretion, secretly involved in debt, and the frankest of human lasses, engaged in a clandestine affair. They whisked me, in short, into every crevice of female subtlety. They exhibited all as a drama, and gave me a peep behind the curtain to see the gayest damsel the sulkiest, the most pleasing one, the most spiteful, the delicate one, the obstreperous, the bashful one, bold, the generous one, niggardly, and the humble one, a tyrant. Oh, wicked imps indeed, Sir Jasper! What a view of poor human nature they have deformed for you! And how have you preserved such a stock of philanthropy, while instigated by so much malignity? Alas, my fair love, my history is but that of half the old bachelors existing. We pay by our aged facility and good humour, for our youthful severity and impertinence. And, after having wasted our early life in conceiving that no one is good enough for us, we consume our latter days in envy of every married man. Now, all too late, I never see a lovely young creature, but my heart calls out what a delicious wife she would make me, were I younger, without reflection, without inquiry, were I younger, I would marry her. Then, when such precipitation might have been pardonable, some difficulty instantly followed the side of whatever was attractive. One had not fortune enough for my expectations. Another had beauty to make me eternally jealous. Another, though charming, was too old to be formed to my taste. Another, though lovelier still, was too young to be judged. One was too wise, and might hold me cheap. Another was too simple, and might expose me to seeing her held cheap herself. Then, I was so plaguely nice. Now, alas, I am so cursedly easy. Your sylphs, elfs, and imps, sir, or, in other words, your humour and imagination, must seek some counterpoise, and not always, you see, be trusted uncontrolled. You are right, my wise charmer. But we never arrive at judgment, the only counterpoise to our fancies, till we cease to want it. When we are young, in the midst of the world, and in pursuit of beauty, riches, honours, power, fame, or knowledge, then, when judgment would either guide us to success, or demolish our senseless expectations, it keeps aloof from us like a stern stranger, and will only hail us as an intimate when we have no longer any occasion for its services. Of what value is judgment to a goady old codger, who sits just as snugly over his fireside whether his opinions are erroneous or oracular, who wraps himself just as warmly in flannel, whether the world go ill or go well, and who, if by ignorance or mismanagement, he be cheated, loses only what he cannot enjoy. I first became aware of my folly, by the folly of my nephew. When he was sent forth into the world, my decided, alas, heir, I told him my case, and urged him to a rational but quick choice, to obviate a similar punishment to fantastical difficulties. He listened, according to the usage of youth, to half what I said, and, adopting only my mistrust, was inattentive to its result, and thus so caricatured my researches, suspicious and irresolutions, that he has rendered them and myself, even more in my own eyes, completely ridiculous. Tis a most piteous circumstance that a man can be young only once in his life. 
could I but, with my present experience, lop off thirty or forty years of my age? Ah, fair seducer, how would the desire of giving you pleasure, the fear of causing you pain, the wish to see your face always beaming with smiles? Juliet arose to interrupt him. But whither could she go? She sat down again. The baronet also arose, and stood for some minutes, covering his eyes with one hand, in deep rumination. Reseating himself, then, with an air of the most lively satisfaction, "'I have told you,' he cried, "'now my history. You see in me a whimsical but contrite old bachelor, whose entailed estate has lost to him his youth by ungenerous mistrust, but who would gladly devote the large possessions which have fallen to him collaterally.' to making the rest of his existence companionable. Shrink not, sweet flower, I mean nothing that can offend you. Tell me but who you are, and be whom you may, if you will accept an old protector, if you will deign to become his friend, to give him your conversation, your society, your lovely presence, he will despise the mocking world, and decorate himself for your bridegroom, by marriage settlement of the whole of his unentailed estate." Astonished, and uncertain whether he were serious, Juliet was beginning a playful attack upon his fairy elves. But, stopping her with perturbed earnestness, "'Will you?' he cried. "'Accept me. Your beauty, your difficulties, your distresses, your exquisite looks and witching manners, with my solicitude, my repugnance to mercenary watchers, my deep regrets, and my desire of domestic commerce, unite to devote me to you for ever, provided only I can catch a grain, a single grain, of gentle good will. Give me, then, but this one satisfaction. I ask no more. Tell me but whence it comes that, thus formed, thus accomplished, thus wise, thus lovely, you are helpless, dependent, indigent, and a wanderer. Juliet, though no longer able to doubt his meaning, and though not disposed to suspect his sincerity, felt nevertheless shocked by such an investigation, though grateful, and even touched by his singular and romantic proposal. Delicacy, however, which keeps back acknowledged belief in unrequited partiality, as scrupulously as it is withheld by timid consciousness, where the partiality is returned, make her again have recourse to his visionary friends, in order to parry a serious reply. But, too much in earnest to submit to any delay, the baronet, ejaculating, "'Paragon of the world!' was bending over the counter, in an attempt to take her hand, when the sudden opening of the shop-door, which he had himself carefully closed, previous to his declaration, made him draw back, in the utmost confusion, to recover his seat and his crutches, and again demand to look at some ribbons.' End of chapter 68 Recording by Roxana Nazari